Acts chapter 9, starting in verse 32, says this. Now as Peter went here and there among them all, he came down also to the saints who lived in Lydda. And there he found a man named Aeneas, bedridden for eight years, who was paralyzed. And Peter said to him, Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you. Rise and make your bed. And immediately he rose. And all of the residents of Lydda and Sharon saw him, and they turned to the Lord. Now there was in Joppa a disciple named Tabitha, which translated which means Dorcas. She was full of good works and act of charity. In those days she became ill and died. And when they had washed her and laid her in an upper room, since Lydda was near Joppa, the disciples, hearing that Peter was there, sent two men to him, urging him, Please come with, to us without delay. So Peter rose and went to them, and he arrived. They took him to the upper room. All the widows stood beside and weeping and showing tunics and other garments that Dorcas made them while she was with them. But Peter put them all outside and knelt down and prayed and turned to the body. He said, Tabitha, arise. And she opened up her eyes. And when she saw Peter, she sat up. And he gave her his hand and raised her up. Then calling the saints and widows, he presented her alive. And it became known throughout all of Joppa, and many believed in the Lord. And he stayed in Joppa for many days with one Simon a Tanner. Let's pray. Father, this is your word. This is an historical account of you through a man named Peter raising a paralyzed man and then raising a dead woman to life. God, we see an example of your impartial grace and gifts of life in abundance to both men and women, to both Jew and even a picture of moving forward in the idea of an unclean individual. And soon in chapter 10, the Gentile alike. God, we pray this morning that as we look at this historical account, we would look at this and we would learn much about who you are. Though, God, it may just be a reminding to us. God, we pray that you would be glorified in all that is said and done. Your words and your words alone would be said. In your son's holy name. Amen. So this right here, this section of scripture, in my opinion, when you read through the book of Acts, it's almost like, have you guys, I know I have, and I think David has some, watched The Walking Dead. Huh? You watched it? You watch Walking Dead, Walking Dead, you all watch Walking Dead? Bruce says no. Okay, with this analogy, you can go to any TV show, but The Walking Dead was the best at this for some reason. Um, there would be these action-packed episodes where, I mean, everything goes down. I mean, somebody gets bit, somebody gets shot, somebody gets killed. I mean, everything drops in this one big episode. And then you got these episodes in between those that are just fillers. Things are happening and it may paint a picture of something that's going to happen in the future you really don't know yet. Or maybe tying up some loose ends. But they're almost like filler episodes, right? To where they're just 
They have to produce something. They have to get 18 episodes in. So they got this one episode that tells you this backstory of some random character that you know nothing about and you really don't want to know anything about them, right? Y'all have seen shows like that? It's kind of like Carol's background episode. We really thought that it was insignificant completely, but in all reality, Carol becomes a big character, so it was important. Anyway, this moment in the book of Acts seems that way. It seems like a filler. Why is that? Because last week when we ended in verse 31, it says, So the church throughout all of Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up in walking in the fear of the Lord and the comfort of the Holy Spirit. It multiplied. And that ended this section where this persecution of the church had entered in through the individual named Saul. And then after it entered in, we see Saul miraculously saved. And after he is miraculously saved, we see his ministry journey starting. And then this transitional phrase ends. And this moment happens where Peter enters the scene again. We haven't heard of Peter in almost two chapters. So why is this here? Why do we hear this name, this guy named Aeneas, and this woman named Dorcas? Because we, near, we hear nothing of these two guys, these lady and this guy, again, in all of the New Testament. Why is this moment important? I think it's ultimately important because in some ways it is filler. Meaning that we're seeing Peter reintroduced to this historical account of the early church of the acts of the apostles through the work of the Spirit. Because in chapter 10, which David will preach next week, which most of you will not be here for, and you have to listen on to the podcast, he's going to cover all 48 verses of this encounter of Peter having this dream provided to him by God of saying the Gentiles are not unclean. You tell them of Jesus and you trust in God. Now, he's going to give you a whole lot more detailed account than what I just said in 10 seconds. But Peter is entering back into the scene, and we see something that God is doing in the life of Peter. Not only healing these two people, but also in the end of this, we're going to see why where he's staying is important. Not only important because we see that guy named Simon a Tanner mentioned throughout the entire chapter of chapter 10, because this is where Peter's at when all of that goes down. But we're going to see why this is important this morning simply for the sake of Aeneas and Dorcas. So first and foremost, let's look at this idea of Joppa and this place of Lydda. So Lydda was about 25 miles or 40 kilometers for those that care about that. Uh, away from Judea toward the coastal town of Joppa. So essentially you have Judea going coastal town, right? So 37 miles from Judea is this coastal town of Joppa. So Peter is traveling, and as it says in verse 32, Peter went here and there among them all. So he's not really giving a detailed account of his life. He's just saying he's going here and there. He's just he's traveling back and forth, and we see that he finds himself in this land of Lydda first, which is this in-between town between Joppa and Judea. And what does he do there? But 
we'll get to that in just a moment. But then you see the term Joppa, this land in Joppa, which is about 37 miles from Judea. So he's traveling a good distance now. It's not just staying in Jerusalem. He's going pretty far out. He's getting into mixed individuals here. But these encounters here, I want us to notice, first and foremost, is encounters with the Jewish believers. How do we know that to be the case? Well, in both accounts, you'll see this word saints. In verse 32, it says, He came down also to the saints who lived there. And then when you look at verse 41, it says, And when he gave her his hand, he raised her up, and then calling the saints and widows, he presented her alive. So Peter is traveling much like he did in that after following of uh, Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch and that traveling to all of Samaria and all of those places. He's doing a very similar practice here is where the gospel has furthered, where the gospel has went out of Jerusalem. He's now going and following up with these individuals and these churches. And in doing so, he's encountering these Jewish individuals that have trusted in Jesus. And the word saints in the New Testament, and specifically in the book of Acts, is generally talking about Jewish believers, okay? So he's finding these Jewish believers to encourage them, to build them up, and possibly pray over them, and all of those things, right? But we see two encounters that is significantly different. Because I think what's going on here is there still this establishment of who Peter is. See, in these two moments, he heals a lame man and he raises a dead woman. Which, knowing church history, knowing scripture, um, it may call you into remembrance of Luke chapter 5, 17 through 26. I'm not going to read all of it, but it's Luke chapter 5, 17 through 26, which is... I'm just going to read the opening of that. Luke 5, 17 through 26... It says, on that day, he was teaching. Pharisees and teachers of the law were sitting there, and he came in every village of Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem, and the power of the Lord was with him to heal. And behold, some men bringing a bed, a man who was paralyzed, they were seeking to bring him and lay him his hands before Jesus. And finding no way to bring him in because of the crowd, they went up on the roof and they let him down his bed through the tiles of the midst before Jesus. So this is a moment that is paralleling Peter into the life of Jesus. But Jesus spoke with authority to forgive sin and then raise the man from the dead. But Peter speaks in the authority of Christ. He says, in the name of Jesus, rise. He's not saying it in the name of Peter. He's not forgiving sin. He's not doing any of that. He's just paralleling Jesus. So he's looking back at what Christ has already done. And it's establishing this authority in his life. But similarly to that, you have... Luke chapter 7, verse 11. Luke chapter 7, verse 11 says this. Soon afterwards, they went into the town of Nain, and his disciples had a great crowd with him, and he drew near to the gate of the town. Behold, a man had was, uh, has died, was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow, and considerable crowd from the town was with her. And when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her and said to her, Do you do not weep? Then he came and he touched the bearer, and the bearer stood still, and he said to them, said, Young man, I say to you, arise. But then keep on going. 
It says, and then the dead man sat up again, began to speak, and Jesus gave him to his mother. See, both of these accounts, the raising of the lame man and the healing, the, the, the healing of the lame man and the raising of the dead woman were encounters to point back to Jesus. But even more than that, if you think even a little bit farther, you may be reminded of some encounters in 1 Kings. 1 Kings. First Kings chapter 17. First Kings 17, 17. Said, and after this, the son of the woman, the mistress of the house, became ill, and his illness was so severe that he had no breath left in him. And she said to Elijah, what have you against me, O man of God? You have come to bring me, me my sin to remembrance and to cause death of my son. And he said to her, Give me your son. And he took him from his arms and carried him up where? To the upper chamber where he lodged and laid him on his own bed and cried out to the Lord, O Lord, my God, have you brought calamity even upon the widow with whom I sojourned by killing her son? Then he stretched himself upon the child three times and cried out to the Lord, O Lord, my God, let this child's life come into him again. And the Lord listened in the voice of Elijah, and the life of the child came into him again, and he revived. And Elijah took the child, brought him down to the upper chamber into the house, delivered him to his mother. And Elijah said, see, your son lives. Or maybe in 2 Kings chapter 4, verse 18. When the child had grown, he went out one day from his father among the reapers. And he said to the father, Oh, my head, my head. And the father said to his servant, Carry him to his mother. And when he had lifted him, he brought him to his mother. And the child sat on her lap till noon. And then he died. And then when she went up and laid him on the bed of the man of God, shut the door behind him and went out. And she called out to her husband and said, Send me the servants, the one of the donkeys, and quickly go to the Son of God come back again he said why why will you go to him today and neither new moon nor sabbath she said as well and he saddled the donkey and went to the servant urged the animal on taking a shackle of peace unless uh, i tell you so she set out and came to a man of god in mount carmel when the man of god saw her coming he said to gishar his servant look there is a uh, shumanite Run at once to meet her and say to her, It is well with you. It is well with your husband. It is all well with your child. And answered, All is well. When she came to the mountain, the man of God had caught in hold of his feet of Gazah, came in and pushed her away. And the man of God said, Leave her alone. She is in bitter distress. The Lord has hidden from me and has not told me. And then she said, Did I ask for the Lord a son? Did I, did I not say, Do not deceive me? But then if you keep going, you see this moment where Elijah, another man of God, heals another dead person. After the people, the woman, had came seeking him. See, this encounter in the book of Acts 
is not only to be this filler moment until Peter is entering the scene again in chapter 10, but it's to also declare the authority that Peter had by the Holy Spirit through the power of Jesus, right? And so we see this moment that is pointing back to something. See, Elijah and Elijah pointing forward to something. It pointed forward to Jesus, to the one that would not only resurrect, not only the one that would heal, but the one that would bring an ultimate salvation for all who would believe and trust upon him. The one that would bring spiritual life. The one that would make spiritual lame spiritually healed. The one that would take spiritually dead and raise them to life. It was pointing forward to that Jesus. Where Peter, in these two moments, is pointing back to the Jesus that brought spiritual life. And called spiritual blind to see. And called spiritual lame to walk. And so as we dive into these two stories... We're going to see that in a couple phrases that is found in both encounters. It says, Now as Peter went here and there among them all, he went down to the saints of Lydda. There he found a man named Aeneas, bedridden for eight years, who was paralyzed. And Peter said to him, Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you. Rise, make your bed. And immediately he rose. All right, so we could, we could pause there, and I think we should, that this is a miraculous thing. This is an amazing thing. He's been paralyzed for eight years. And Troy, being a Troy and Aaron having some background in um, sports medicine and things of the such would probably be able to explain this much better than me. But after this individual had been paralyzed for eight years, laying on his bed for eight years, unable to walk, unable to move, there would be nothing there, right? There would be no bone. There would be bone, right? But there would be no muscle. There would be no tendons that's really working like it needs to. So this is a miraculous moment where not only is he he's healed of being lame, but now he's given the ability to walk magically in this moment with all power and might of his legs. This is what Jesus does for those who are spiritually dead. But how do we know that to be the case? Verse 35. And all the residents of Lydda and Shuren saw him, and they turned to the Lord. Apparently, they knew this guy had been paralyzed for eight years. They knew this individual. The word here, all, is not meaning all. It doesn't mean everyone in Lydda and Sharon saw him. It means those who saw him, that knew him, that knew he was paralyzed, that knew that this encounter happened with Peter, where Peter says, Jesus Christ heals you. And those who knew of this account trusted in the Lord. That God, through the name of Peter, through the work of Peter and the name of Christ, heals this lame man in this land of Lydda, which was this land just in between two destinations. And in there, he raises spiritually dead to life. It's very similar to that of Jesus interacting with the woman at the well. It would almost seem accidental at best. But what we know about God is God is not a God that happens, that, that works with accidents, but rather is working out his great and sovereign plan to ultimately fulfill his will in the lives of his people. 
So in this moment, we, know, we may see this is filler or this moment, this transitional piece in between Saul and Peter coming back into the scene. But this was a real moment in the real life of a guy named Aeneas where he was healed of his lameness, of his paralyzed nature. And not only was he healed of being paralyzed, but people that was in this town turned to Jesus. See, in Acts, when you see the Lord, it's talking about Jesus. So they turned to Jesus. Why did they turn to Jesus? Because Peter was pointing backwards to a man that hung on a cross, that died the death they deserved, that was laid in a tomb, that rose again, that conquered sin, conquered death, conquered the grave, and caused dead man to come alive again. Not in Peter's name. Not in Peter's work. But in the name of Christ. But this moment was not accidental, but was also to do a miraculous work in the land of Joppa. Because if you keep going in verse 36, it says, Now there was a, a Joppa, a disciple named Tabitha, which was translated to Dorcas. She was full of good works in the, city of, in the acts of charity. In those days she became ill and died, and they watched her, and they laid her in the upper room. I don't think she was laid in an upper room by accident. They had prepared the body for burial. Since Lydia was near Joppa, the disciples hearing that Peter was there sent two men urging him, please come to us without delay. It was 12 miles away. That may not seem like a big deal to us because we have Facebook and Instagram and Twitter and we have news broadcasting, even though I don't think anybody in this room probably watches the news anymore. You may read the articles online. Jessica's getting offended, so apparently she does. This may not seem like that big of a deal to us because our information is constant. Our information is easily deliverable. Our information is easily consumed. But this was 12 miles away in a land in which they either walked everywhere, they rode a donkey everywhere, or they rode in a chariot. So 12 miles away, what Peter had done in this life of this man named Aeneas had come known to Joppa. And these... These people had heard about it. And so they go to Peter and say, please come to us without delay. We don't know what happened in that initial conversation. We don't know what happened in the 12 mile journey. But what we do know is that they said, come to us. We don't know if Peter was intending to raise this woman from the dead. We don't know any of that. But what we do know clearly is that God was intending to raise this woman from the dead. Because if God was not intending to raise this woman from the dead, Peter could have got there and said, stand up and, and live again, and it would not have done anything. But it's in the power of Christ that this was accomplished. But remember the parallel to Elijah where the mother comes to him begging that he would raise her child from the dead? Or in the moment in the life of Elijah where he is in the house and the boy dies and the woman is pleading with him to raise her son from the dead. This is exactly what's going on here. So what happens? It says, so Peter rose and went to them. And when he arrived, they took him to the upper room in the window. The widow stood beside him, weeping and showing tunics and other garments that Dorcas made while she was with them. Now, I'm going to pause here because this does not matter. Um, 
but you have two names here. You have Dorcas and you have Tabitha. Okay, Tabitha would have been a Hebrew name. Dorcas would have been a Greek name. Both of those names mean, it, it meant like deer or gazelle or an animal like that, right? So this woman's name is Dorcas, which means deer, all right? So it doesn't matter. I just find it unique, right? And so they, this woman, though, look at what she's known by. Look at 36. She was full of good works and acts of charity. But then even after she had died, it says Peter rose and went with them, and they arrived and took him to the upper room. And all the widows stood beside him, weeping and showing tunics and other garments that Dorcas made while she was with them. Why is that significant? Because in this day and time, especially in some of the moments in which Jesus raised individuals from the dead, there were these professional weepers that were hired, especially in people that were wealthy, that were hired to weep over the death of a loved one. But these are not actors. These are not people that doesn't know this woman surrounded her. See, not only was she known in life as one that did good works and acts of charity, but at her death, around her dead body in the upper room, there was widows and individuals showing off the tunics and the garments that she made for them, that she loved them, she cared for them. We can't miss this because I don't think it's the overall theme of this, but I think it's important for us to note and ask the question is, what are we going to be known for when we breathe our last breath? When those who are around our dead body, those who are at our funeral, those who are around us in those moments, what are we going to be known for in that moment? See, if we live our lives without the idea of eternity at the forefront of it, then we're missing something. If we get so caught up that we're seeing nothing but what is in front of our faces, then we're missing in the idea and the truth of living in the already and not yet of the kingdom of God. Apparently, this woman did not have that problem. Because at the moment of her death, there were people so grieved that these men would go 12 miles journey in a hurry to try to raise her from the dead. And these people would surround her body weeping over the loss of this great woman. Verse 40 says, But Peter put them all outside. He knelt down and he prayed, turning to the body. He said, Tabitha, arise. She opened her eyes and she saw Peter. She sat up. And as he gave her his hand, raised her up, then calling in the saints and windows, he presented her alive. Man, that's amazing. That even after Christ's resurrection, after Christ's ascension, the power of God, the, the work of the Spirit is still raising lame men and raising dead women back from life, from death into life. But why? Why was God doing this? Verse 42. And it became known throughout all of Joppa, and many believed in the Lord. And the Lord, when you see the Lord in the book of Acts, what is it saying? 
Somebody can answer. The word Lord means what in the book of Acts? Jesus. And many believed in Jesus. What I would argue is that many believed in the name of Jesus because of the life of this woman named Tabitha or Dorcas. But many also believed in the name of Jesus because of the resurrection of Tabitha or Dorcas. See, we've looked at this before in previous moments in Acts, so I don't want to highlight this too long. But what I do want us to see in both of these counts is that God is providing a sign and a wonder, not just to do great things, not just to do miraculous things, but because God is in the business of saving lost souls. That God is in the business of revealing that He is a perfect and holy God that has created them and therefore they're accountable to Him. They're made by Him. They're owned by Him. They're accountable to Him. They're dependent upon Him. And being all of those things, they are sinful individuals that are in need of a Savior and Christ is the one that has redeemed and saved them. And if they would just believe and trust in Him, they would put their faith in Him, they would repent of their sins and turn away, they would have everlasting life. The reason why He raises a lame man and He raises a lame man from laying on a bed to walking and taking up His bed and leaving, the reason why He takes a dead woman and gives her new life is to point back to the Jesus that was the originator of life. Point back to the Jesus that would not only save physical things in people's life, but save spiritual things in their lives as well. That's the meat of this text. But I want us to look at 43 very briefly because this is going to be really important for next week's sermon. It doesn't seem like a big deal. It just seems like that transitional section it says, in, He stayed in Joppa for many days with one Simon, a tanner. Now, he being Peter, stays in Joppa for many days. We don't know why he decided to stay in Joppa for many days. What we do know, though, is when you look at verse 1, it says, At Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion of what was known of the Italian cohort, a devout man and filled, feared with all of the household and gave alms and generosity to the people and prayed continuously to God. About the ninth hour of the day, he saw clearly in a vision an angel of God come in and say to him, Cornelius, and he stared at him in terror and said, What is it, Lord? And he said to him, Your prayers and your alms have ascended in memorial before God and now send men to Joppa, and bring one Simon who is called Peter. He is lodging with one Simon a tanner whose house is by the sea. The reason why Peter stays in Joppa, though in his own mind is unknown to us, we know is by the sovereign plan of God so that this man named Cornelius would see him there and find him there. And David's going to get into why that's important next week. This is the end part of the walking dead when it tells you in next week's episode you will see but what we also see in this is that God is also beginning to soften the heart of Peter to evangelize to the Gentile that's really what next week's old text is about 
is the Gentile is now not unclean, but clean, and they need Jesus. But what we see in verse 43 is the softening of hearts, not only in salvation, but in the life of Simon. And what I want us to highlight in this, before I even talk about how this is the case, is don't we need the same thing in our own lives? That God would soften our hearts to those around us that are just different than us? Or that individual that has wronged us or have sinned against us, that have done something to us? Isn't that what we need so often when we see someone and we have this preconceived idea about who they are or we believe that maybe Jesus can't save them or maybe they're just not ready? Don't we need God to soften our hearts sometimes to prepare us to go and to share the gospel with individuals? Maybe too often we find ourselves worried about what's here rather than what's worried about what's in eternity. So we need God to soften our hearts in that way as well. So how does God soften the heart of Peter according to verse 43? It says, And he stayed in Joppa for many days with one Simon, which is cool because his name's Simon too, Simon Peter. So two Simons chilling in his house. But look at the career of this Simon. He's a tanner. I could make some lame joke about me not being a tanner. Get it? Anyway. Or I could just tell you what a tanner is. Or you could tell me. What is a tanner? Anybody know? Yes. They would tan hides of what? There ain't no vegan hides at this time, right? These are dead animals. Cows, sheep, whatever. I love this. I love making stuff with leather, so this is right up my alley. But why is this significant? It's because in this time, in Jewish customs... A tanner would have lived a life of being consistently unclean because his occupation was to touch the hides of dead animals. Peter's heart is being softened to the unclean, first and foremost by the Gentile, not the Gentile, but first and foremost by the Sumerian, as we've seen a few weeks ago, but now it's continuing in the reality of staying in the home with one that would be considered unclean. And if he stayed in the home of the man that is unclean, guess what? He would be unclean too. Because his trust and his hope was not in the traditions of the Jewish customs then, but it was in Christ and Christ alone. So we begin to see his heart softened, but not softened enough to save the Gentile and to proclaim the gospel to the Gentile. It would actually take several dreams and talking back to God for Peter to be saved from that. And David will cover that next week. But what we see in all of this this morning, and I think the two things I want to highlight for us. I'm going to do it backwards. Three things, three things. Often God uses things to save individuals. Signs and wonders. And we see specifically two moments here where God uses the raising of a lame man, a paralyzed man. And then God also using the raising from life to death of this woman named Tabitha. But let's not miss the everyday ordinary memes in which God was using to save people in Joppa through the efforts of Tabitha. What does it say here? What, did they, what were they holding while they were weeping? What were they showing off to Peter, the great apostle? The tunics and other garments that Dorcas made. Man, that's simple. Man, that's so simple. It's what they were showing off in her death would probably led them to a gospel conversation with this woman named Tabitha. 
It was these garments that she made for them and provided for them. The good deeds. Because what is she known by? A woman of good works and acts of charity. Man, that's great. We can learn much from that. The ordinary means of life is an opportunity to proclaim the gospel to people. If it be buying someone's gas, which is probably in a need of some people's lives nowadays. If it be having someone over for dinner. If it's meeting their needs in some small, minute way. Opening up opportunities to proclaim the gospel to them. That we would be known as people that have good works and acts of charity. Not so that we can build up our names. But so that we can build up the name of Christ and the kingdom of God. The second thing though. Is that God will soften our hearts for opportunities like that. Or for opportunities of showing grace. In the seventh time, seventieth time, where forgiveness is necessary from us, or where we don't want to see past our own stuff, that God would soften our hearts to those that are around us that are hard to love. And I think the third, and that's the first thing I mentioned earlier. It's very simply that we would live. In the, the reality of the already not yet. And what I mean by that is salvation has come. Christ is redeemed. Christ is saved. The kingdom of God has come. It already is, but it's not yet fulfilled completely. And in us living in that reality, what we do then is live in the idea, in the truthfulness, in the, the really the truth, depth, the true depth of the fact that we all are going to be faced one day with those around us circled around our bodies that are going to look at our past life and they're going to look at us and they're going to say one thing or think one thing or another. And my question for all of us is what are we going to be known by? Am I going to be known by that postal worker in Caledonia and that is it? Am I gonna, are you going to be known by that individual that gave everything to your work or everything to your family? Are you going to be known by someone that makes disciples, somebody that proclaims the gospel? When we arrive in heaven, are there going to be multitudes behind us that we can honestly say we played a part in their salvation and their discipleship? What is Redeemer Church as a whole going to be known by in the view of eternity? Are we going to be known by a church that gathers on Sundays and gathers for community groups and that is it? Or are we going to be known by a church that plays a part of God's plan in reaching the, the kingdom, the, the world around us, if it be directly around us or if it be internationally or if it be domestically? Are we going to be known by a church that makes, prior, makes the gospel and makes discipleship our priority? reality for us is no different than that of the life of Peter. It's that God desires to save people. And sometimes that looks like trusting in Him to put us where He are, where we are, when we are for a reason. And this morning, I think that's where most of us sit. But my question is, are we looking past our immediate lives? And viewing it in the eyes of eternity. He almost faced eternity then. (laughs) So. 
in light of that, Troy will come, Nick will come. We're going to sing this song together in this last moment. But I want to read a scripture. I would ask him to quote it because I know he can. But I'm going to read it so that I don't mess it up. Romans chapter 1, chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but transformed by the renewing of your mind, that by the testing you may discern what is the will of God and what is good and acceptable and perfect. Let us be men and let us be women that live our lives as a living sacrifice. Heavenly Father, we love you. We thank you. We thank you for this moment together. God, we pray that you are glorified. We pray that your scripture is taught in a way that is not only beneficial to us, but one that is God glorifying and honoring. God, be with us now. God, let us look past our immediate lives and look towards eternity. And Father, let that be what drives us forward. Let that be what energizes us. Let that be what gives us the strength to put our foot on the pedal and not let go. God, we pray now that you would be glorified in all things. In Jesus' name, amen.